Welcome to episode 162, Beyond Techniques, Using Principle-Based Supervision to Grow Clinical Competence, featuring Dr. Julia Macaronis, Licensed Clinical Psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am joined by Dr. Julia Macaronis, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Washington, and she's joining us today to have a conversation about, wow, I mean, really the purpose of therapy, what healing even is, and then how to deliver principle-based services that basically supersede evidence-based practices or this manualized care and then how we even talk about that in supervision. So this is certainly a complicated topic, but a, a really important one. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Macaronis. I am so happy to be here. So tell our listeners a little bit about you and about how you came to do this work and have this focus on supervision and basically how to help trainees and therapists in general be authentic healers in the room and not get stuck in... Um, feeling like we need to reach for a book in page number 347, intervention number two. Um, so please tell our listeners about you. Yes. I'm actually going to start off by mentioning that I'm taking leave from my day job for our conversation, um, but I'm still in my physical office space in the Roger Hawk. Sox Health Center of the Quinault Indian Nation, which is where I'm currently working as our lead mental health provider. I talked with several colleagues about just how to appropriately acknowledge the land that I'm sitting on for this conversation, Beth, and we all really resonated with this adaptation of a land acknowledgement that the Burke Museum in Seattle co-created with Salish leaders. Um, So what I would like to say is that I am speaking to you from the land of the Quinault people whose ancestors have resided here since time immemorial. Many Quinault people thrive in this place, alive and strong. And to speak a little bit more about myself is one of the things that I'm doing in my current position and have done in all my positions since becoming a psychologist and actually while in training is supervision. Sometimes I like to joke with folks that I think I like talking about therapy as much, maybe even more than I like doing it. (laughs) So this is definitely an area that I'm really passionate about. And one of the things we were actually talking about a minute ago that I think is really relevant here is to me, supervision is ultimately about the services and the potential for healing that we're providing our clients. Uh, So sometimes I think we get really caught up in thinking about supervision as an evaluatory learning environment, which of course it is, and it's in service of this particular thing, right? Uh, So I know for myself, one of the most rewarding things about supervision is it's one of the ways that we can feel that we are potentially helping folks other than just the individuals that we see for therapy, right? But also, okay, if I can help someone in their professional journey, uh, what are the ripple effects of that work outward, which is a pretty awesome responsibility and I think a good thing to be thoughtful about. So thank you for joining us and and thank you also for the land acknowledgement. Um, This topic and the consideration of supervision, I think fundamentally starts with why are we here? (laughs) Like, What is therapy? Um, How do we do it? What are we trying to accomplish through therapy? And through your lens, it's really using the answer to those questions to create a principle-based therapeutic environment, not only for supervisees, but then also for the clients that those supervisees are treating. Um, 
So I'm, I'm curious, Julia, what is therapy? <laughs> Woo. We're starting, we're starting right off with the, yeah. with the, the tough stuff. Uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And to me, therapy is one healing modality of many that at its best, I think, can speak to some of the problems that are unique to being a human right here and right now. At its worst, I think sometimes it can actually perpetuate that. So another thing that I really appreciate actually about Clearly Clinical in terms of the podcasts available, um, therapy is not a tool for systemic issues, for example. Uh, I think therapy is a space where oftentimes we can do really important healing work, helping people acknowledge the impact of systemic issues on their life and and making room for a lot of uh, self-compassion work, for example, about that. Uh, And at the end of the day, you know, we still need policy changes for, for a lot of really important things. So I think part of the answer about what therapy is is another answer of what it's not. And and on the flip side of that, I think that therapy is more than paid friendship. I I don't mean that glibly as I say that. I think there's some really cool data. Not any that I could cite off the top of my head, but I know um, like uh, in India, for example, there have been programs of what does good peer support look like? And that can have a really measurable and positive impact on people's life when you're just taking other lay people in the community and and, uh, teaching listening skills and stuff like that. I think that can be really important. I also think therapists in general, we don't like to acknowledge how effective that can be. (laughs) But part of that is a failure of imagination on our part, right? So if there is this spectrum of just being a kind, compassionate, good listening human being that is really helpful to people, what does therapy offer people above and beyond that? Um, And some of the examples, the first one that popped into my head is a very concrete one is, you know, you can talk to your friend about your blood injection phobia, you know, all day. Uh, And unless your friend has a really particular set of skills, you're probably not going to get over the phobia. Whereas when we think about what therapy can offer, that, that is something that a lot of therapists could help you with and pretty quickly too. So that that's part of this whole supervision conversation, I think as well is um, what are we offering? What are we not offering? And then how do we be really, really transparent with the clients that we work with about that? I think one of the reasons this really matters for supervision is these these are really big, heady topics. You know, as we're talking, I, I've been practicing for a while and I'm noticing myself reflecting on, gosh, how, how do I talk with people about therapy? And that helps me remember how scary and intimidating this can feel for our trainees. When, <laughs> you know, when your questions are as basic as how do I be in the room with another person, uh, it really is a whole other level of thing to be then thinking about. How do I not only be with them, but how do I describe to them what I'm attempting to do with them? Absolutely. And and I appreciate that nod to this idea about paid friendship. And among my colleagues, I've certainly had that conversation about basically what is therapy and also how our role as therapists changes in the room with different populations, with different clients. You know, I, I, I have not worked extensively with young children, but what therapy is with young children and how it's conducted is vastly different than um, really directed couples therapy, for example. And that 
our goals are different. And so as you're talking about principles, I think part of that is this fundamental idea of like, what is our goal and staying connected to that orientation beyond theoretical model? Because I know for me as a supervisor, how do you work within um, uh, trainees or supervisees clinical framework, their perspective, and also help them stay oriented toward the goal of therapy, quote unquote, which is a, a big undertaking. That's that's a big challenge for supervisors who are meeting different clinicians where they're at with different perspectives. Yeah, that's such a great question. And the first thing that popped into my mind is I want to give credit. I, I went uh, to a really great doctoral internship in the Albuquerque area. It's the Southwest Consortium Doctoral Internship. And one of the ways that they really worked with trainees on expanding our case conceptualization skills was in a completely non-clinical way, sometimes asking the question of a particular patient, what does this person need? And the answers to that could be anything from this person needs stable housing, which like ding, 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 systems issues, right? To actually what this person really needs it was to have been reparented, <laughs> um, which which is sometimes what people are really struggling with, right? Is, is these deep-rooted attachment issues. And so I think sometimes when we remove the technical jargon from that and we start talking about, no, on a really human level, what does this person need? It actually enables us to return to that question of what can we offer them in, in ways that are, are really helpful. Um, you know, even to take those two examples, if you've got someone struggling with housing stability, sometimes I think it's very helpful for people to realize, you know what, actually, I'm not the right person to help this person find housing, depending on the setting. But what can I do to support their mental health and help them advocate for themselves? And what other what other parts of the systemic issue can I get them in contact with or support their contact with? Um, and the same thing with if you look at someone who you know we we I think anyone who's doing clinical work runs into this when you look at someone who really didn't have the kind of caregivers that any child deserves. First of all, part of the work of being a therapist is recognizing that we can't erase that. And I do think that can be hard for trainees to sit with at first. And then also helps you think like in a bounded way with, within an ethical scope of practice. For me, what can I provide this person? And at least from my lens, how I work with folks is often, you know, you're teaching people how to parent themselves, which already, right? There's some more specificity to this, right? It's, it's so, that, so then that raises some really interesting principle-based questions of, okay, well, now we're starting to think about like, what does, what does good parenting look like and how might you communicate that to someone so they can start uh, changing their self-treatment or, or what work needs to precede that change in self-treatment. So um, sometimes I think that can be really helpful for trainees. Put aside your clinical hat answer the really big question of what does this person need? And then we can look back at those clinical questions with a different lens and perspective. I am struck by that question too, in its simplicity, because if we can't answer that question, if we can't even easily answer that question, then to me, it starts to automatically open up this deeper thought about well, then what am I doing here with that person? If what they need is housing and that that's their primary issue, is that something I can be in support of? Or if they they need um, help with the severity of their psychotic symptoms, is that something that I can be of help with? And to basically know our role, the limitations of our role as therapist and healer, and to be really transparent and upfront about that, not only with ourselves, but also with our clients. Here are the limitations of what I can do in the system that we have, how it exists. 
Yeah, you're, and and one of the things that I think is really important, kind of woven through this throughout this conversation, is transparency, and then also how that relates to power. I do think one of the things that's really important to convey to trainees is there are times where. Um, we, we don't yet know what can I offer this person. That can be a hard thing to ascertain in a 50 or 90 minute intake session. I do think that especially when trainees really feel this urgency coming from a beautiful place, right? I want to be able to offer this person something. Um, we can feel pressure to know that faster or act like we know that faster than is actually reasonable to do that. Uh, you know, one of my experiences was I worked in, in the VA for five years and even in systems with a lot of rules, they don't say in the VA, your training plan has to, your treatment plan has to be done in the first session. They say the first one to three sessions, acknowledging right in there in this huge system, it, it can take time to unfold. And I think we can really underestimate, especially from the trainee perspective, the value of transparently sitting with another person and saying, huh, I'm not sure where our work is going to go yet. And because that's usually not the end of the sentence. I, I, I was actually just talking about this with a therapy patient this morning. So I followed that up with, here's two important themes I'm picking up from our conversation together what do you think about how they relate to each other, right? So immediately handing that back to the person in co-creating the the modality of healing we're, we're doing together. Uh, sometimes I think trainees in their desire to do it right feel as though they're supposed to have their like therapy magic wand that they wave over people's heads. <laughs> uh, and first, first of all, if we could do that, all of us would be making a whole lot more money. But the other, the, the other piece of that is I think that would be less fun then then this transparent conversation can be about how do we figure out what it is you really need? How does that fit with what I'm able to offer? And then how do we move forward together or maybe even separately from there? It's an interesting concept that you're talking about, you know, in this idea of approaching each client with this very simple evaluation of what does this person need, but that also in that evaluation, that answer as it becomes clear to us needs to be our guiding light. And I think that's where things get muddy and we get into the phenomenon of imposter syndrome and, you know, feeling like I don't have whatever quote unquote skill that I should, you know, what intervention, the number of times I've been on social media where I see a clinician say, I've done X, Y, Z interventions times six and here are the outcomes. And now what do I do? And it's this really interesting phenomenon because in other industries, in other realms that might exist, where it's like, okay, I've tried this skin cream to treat the rash. I've tried this. We tried dietary changes, blah, 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 blah. And so a dermatologist says to another dermatologist colleague, what am I missing here? Um, and that there might be this more um, rote concept of like, here are the next treatment steps you're going to do versus this really unique space between client and therapist that's ever evolving. That's so different from any other field that, but, but we want to comfort ourselves by saying, okay, well then I'm going to do this particular intervention. And if that one doesn't work, then I'm going to do this one. And I remember for me, like in my early days of doing therapy, how adorable that was to walk in with like kind of this list of interventions where it's like, and then we're going to do this because I talked in supervision about how these things X, Y, and Z can be helpful with anxiety. So essentially it doesn't matter person what you say or do today. This is what we're going to be doing because this is what I talked about in supervision and what they talked about in my class about mood disorder. So here we are. Here's the intervention. 
<laughs> so our readers, readers, the listeners can't see this, but I'm just like smiling and nodding like, yes, yes, yes. So, so let's all take a moment of, of self-compassion for our, our uh, developing therapist selves. <laughs> I think though you gave such a great example, Beth, of a lot of times when we get stuck, I have noticed a tendency in myself certainly and others when people do that, like what intervention next, that is really a question about technique that I would like us to move away from both as a field and then also certainly in supervision. It's a tool-oriented question, right? Of I've tried the hammer, I've tried the screwdriver, maybe maybe this wrench will work. And that always leads to two really important questions for me is, first of all, I think we have to be really rigorous with ourselves and also with our trainees of, Yes, but did you use the hammer well? Because <laughs> there are a lot of times where we we do want to know that of, of with the specific technique, are you deploying it with enough fidelity to really be able to say, yeah, I gave that an honest shot. So a good example of that that comes up with trainees is things like um, exposure-based work can be difficult to do because uh, patients and clients feel anxiety, of course, about the about the thing that they've been avoiding. So there are times where a trainee will themselves white knuckle their way through an exposure-based intervention. And I don't think it's actually fair either to the technique and certainly not to the client to say, we tried that if, if the clinician can't be truly honest with themselves about like, I, I tried that the way that technique is intended to be deployed. Um, so, so that's one question I always have is, is you know, how, how, did, how did we do with all these fancy technical interventions? But then the other bigger question about what does this person need is with those techniques that you were using, what were the underlying principles that you were trying to activate? And, and sometimes it is a question of, okay, that particular technique d- didn't get at the thing I was trying to activate. And, and sometimes the answer of, well, how to make that process come alive in the room is a is a much less fancy one than we think it's going to be. <laughs> um, so creating room for that conversation, certainly in our own work, but definitely with with trainees. Um, and I think I think some of that is actually an artifact of just training itself. It is easier to teach people techniques than it is to teach them the principles of when and how you use those techniques. So uh, one example that I think people will probably relate to is I try to be very conscious of using mm-hmm's in therapy. I had a supervisor who brought that to my attention. In human communication, mm-hmm is a verbal reinforcer. So, so whatever you say mm-hmm to, you've just reinforced. And there's times that that can be incredibly powerful and make people feel really heard. But also, let's say you're working with someone who's got some interpersonal difficulties and they come in and they tell you this story where they did something that, unless you're really missing something, you, you think they you know blew a situation out of proportion or reacted too strongly to someone else. If you mm-hmm their description of their overreaction, you are unintentionally or no saying you agree with it. Uh, so, uh, so first thing is <laughs> we, we want to be very careful with stuff like that. I think the other thing is, think about the message that that is sending to trainees. So I think we, mm-hmm, because we do want to indicate we're listening and, and being there for people through listening is a really important part of this healing modality. And also, if you think about it, mm-hmm-ing is a pretty crappy way of adhering to that principle. <laughs> you know, if I had someone come in for therapy and say, I'd like to be a better listener to my friends, my advice to them would not be to say, mm-hmm, more. We, we would be having a much broader and deeper conversation about how do you convey that you are not only hearing but absorbing what people are saying 
to counter that, I think another example is if you think about complex reflections and motivational interviewing, it's sort of the the technical opposite of an mm-hmm. It takes some time to do and you've got to think about what's the underlying piece here that this person's attempting to communicate. And you do them less often because it's a harder technique to deploy. But I bet there's a lot of people out there who in practice – if they had someone who said not a single mm-hmm to them, but gave a couple good complex reflections, my, my money is on that situation as feeling more heard than the mm-hmms. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff to, to talk about people with. And as I say this, I'm aware that that could sound really intimidating to a trainee. So also know your audience. <laughs> Maybe session number one is not the one to say, and I never say mm-hmm in therapy and neither should you, which is not how I would present it anyway. But I think that can be something with someone with with growing skills that's really good to think about. What are the ways that you know to convey to your clients that you're listening? Uh, and when do those techniques work best and when do they work less well as well? It's a tall order when it feels much easier and I think much more uh, protective, less vulnerable to grab whatever acronym book off of the shelf and flip to a certain page and say, okay, this is what we're going to be doing today, um, than to actually do what you're talking about, which is really deep thinking and evaluation, not just about the goal or the principle of therapy with that person, but then who are you in the room in relation to that person and how are you showing up for them, whether that's through this idea of what is active listening? Is that through the expression of a mm-hmm? And what does that simultaneously do? And I, I think it's in that where people get scared is this idea of paralysis by analysis, that if I think too deeply about everything, if I'm so aware of I mean, I know, I remember hearing in class at some point that um, people feel more comfortable when others mirror their physical movements. And so wouldn't you bet that I walked into my next session like, oh, the client is crossing their legs. I should cross my legs too. Um, Because in that moment, my attempt to become authentic was the exact opposite of actually being authentic. (laughs) Um, because we become hyper aware of what we're doing and somehow in that lose sight of the entire principle or goal of the session or goal of therapy with that person to begin with. Yeah. So there's, I would say, something I talk a lot about with supervisees is I really do think it's important for supervisors to have a clear sense themselves of why supervision is not and should not be therapy. However, I think there's a lot of times, and this is certainly when I've when I've received supervision as well, I think supervision can feel very therapeutic. <laughs> and, and part of that therapeutic space of supervision can include this discussion of, uh, you, you just described such a good paradox, right, of, of uh, there are times when attempting to be real and genuine in the room can actually decrease your genuineness in the moment if you're you know, thinking about leg crossing. I, I think affect matching is another great example of that. Um, I had been, I was working with a supervisee who is pretty new to therapy and was working with a client who is depressed uh, with some vegetative symptoms. This was really someone who was talking slowly, making poor eye contact. You could just feel bodily their depression when they were in the room. And the the trainee had been really hesitant to they were trying to affect match, actually. That was one of those ideas they had glommed onto. They said, okay, I'm going to not try to come in and be incongruously cheerful. And also, 
as we talked about the experience, it was clear that the therapy was stalling. <laughs> they, they, they weren't really able to, to even collaboratively agree on what are we working on together. And so we ended up talking about the affect matching. And one of the questions I initially asked this trainee is, okay, so can you tell me a situation where you wouldn't want to match the affect? And, and at first this was that was not what they had heard. They were sort of thinking, oh, what does that even mean? But they eventually said, you know, obviously, if you if you see someone who's in an acute mania, no, no, you should not match their affect, frankly. And that opened up this little space where we talked about, okay, so how could you sit with this person's clearly very heavy depression without feeling like affect matching means you need to act that way as well? And over time, this was a long supervision conversation over multiple sessions. What the therapist and the client were eventually able to reflect on is he had been so attuned to affect matching that he had forgotten about a really important about uh, part of our healing modality, which is creating expectations for hope for change. <laughs> he he was affect matching kind of so well that I don't I don't think he was really conveying to this person both I hear and see how depressed you are, and I think I can offer something that would be helpful in ameliorating that for you. So that's really interesting. So, so as you have alluded to and mentioned kind of this idea of the potential misuse of an intervention or technique, muddying the water. And that example to me is like, then you have therapist and client kind of swirling around in this eddy that yes. you get stuck and sidelined in this insistence. And, and before you and I started recording, we were talking about this power dynamic that just exists in general in therapy and obviously exists in supervision. But there's also the idea, I think, when we're using um, an intervention that doesn't work, <laughs> either because maybe we're not adherent in it or it's not the right context or person or situation, whatever it is, um, then how do we also let go of that when, you know, when we are very fancy therapists with these diplomas on the wall and, and this intervention must work according to this research that was done at the university of blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it can get, I think, pressured too. And then there's also this power of expecting the patient or client to perform. You came to me to deliver this service. And, and then if you don't do that, then how am I playing into this bigger system of you letting me down? And then power just kind of, to me, it does that thing like on a computer. <laughs> if you've ever done a screen share where it just keeps screen sharing, or like if you look into two mirrors that are facing each other, and you just keep looking deeper and deeper into a million yes. different mirrors, it just keeps going deeper and deeper into these power dynamics that are playing out in how we're using technique to potentially replicate um, wounds about power and failure and success and all these other things. And you're, you're closing your eyes and shaking. Can you tell our listeners about that? <laughs> shaking her head, not shaking. But yeah, yeah, no, all, all, all the things, Beth, I agree. And it's sort of like we can take this in two directions. So, so one, when this anxiety comes up in trainees, uh, and there's also one thing I want to make sure I mention about how this feels on the supervisory end too. But first for trainees, I, I think there is this phenomenon where some anxiety in some contexts leads trainees and therapists to double down on the technique. So an example that I think comes up all the time is if you're using Socratic dialogue, which when performed well is a cornerstone of cognitive behavioral therapy. When performed poorly, it feels like a cross-examination where, where the therapist is trying to show the client how wrong they are. So I think some anxiety can lead to that. And then the other, and that I would say is an abuse of power in a way. The flip side of that is also an abuse of power, and sometimes we don't acknowledge that, 
this is where I think that trainees and therapists sometimes abuse our power by abdicating it. Right. When we throw our hands up and sort of say, nothing's working, I don't know how to help you. One thing to me that always signals burnout in other providers is if you hear someone say something along the lines of, you know, you should never work harder than the patient. That, that one's a particular needle for me because I always run and respond, yeah, but you should definitely be working smarter than the patient, <laughs> but in a transparent way, which I think, so, so without throwing your hands up or doubling down, there's this space where you have to come back to, and this is a really difficult skill to convey to trainees, how, how do we talk about the work that you're doing with your clients, with them in this really transparent way where, where it's, you are co-creating the work of therapy together. and and how to really not only believe that from a values-based perspective, I do a lot of act, but then translate that into your own committed action. And I think anytime we start switching techniques or doubling down on techniques without really thinking about and communicating about the principles, um, then we're not, we're not usually doing a great job with that. The other thing, just to loop back around really quickly, that I want to empower supervisors to be aware of is one of the things that I know, there's a great chapter that summarizes how some of uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow stuff applies to therapists. It's a it's a chapter by Antonin Singer from 2016 that I just love. And one of the things I've noticed about it, myself as a supervisor is a lot of times if I'm doing direct observation or listening to tape, I will have the feeling of, uh, I would have done something different before I can actually articulate to the supervisee what I would have done differently and why. Uh, so that, first of all, that's that nice toggling between the two systems that I do think you get when you develop some expertise in this. And that's also a principle-based feeling, right? So so I'm getting that feeling of like, oh, I would have gone in a different direction, not from the technical standpoint per se, but because the trainee has inadvertently or maybe advertently um, done, done something that shifts us away from whatever principle I thought was most important in the moment. And then as a supervisor, my job is like, okay, let's enlist that slower system too. What, what principle was I hoping they would kind of stick with and how can I help them figure out technically how, how to do that? So that's where uh, I, I think there is a the, the examples that resonate the most with me is I had a really amazing supervisor, the psychologist Lorna Smith-Benjamin, and she argued that psychotherapy is a craft, totally rejected this idea of art or science, uh, both, right? The, that, that what we are doing is thoughtfully, artistically even deploying science to the, to the benefit of people. And, and that does, as for ourselves as clinicians, we want to cultivate that and then also teach trainees how to cultivate that in themselves. I appreciate the example that you just gave because I think it, again, circles back and shines a light on this idea of having a real clear identification of what what does this person need and not just from the therapist perspective, but also what is the client seeking and with acknowledgement here that that gets really complicated with families. <laughs> like I'm thinking of, you know, adolescent work, for example, where my definition or my, my thinking uh, as a therapist about what the client may need, quote unquote, may be very different than what a parent may say in answer to that question or even the client themselves. So I appreciate that complexity. But it sounds like in that example you gave, it's almost before you can describe it, but catching yourself as a supervisor, having this physical reaction of the, uh, and that that's 
almost the moment's way of saying we lost the guidepost. And, and I think that's something that is really important for supervisors to normalize for trainees that I, I'm catching these moments in tape uh, there with, with my ex- bringing my experience to bear on that. There may be no reason that you catch that in the moment other than this vague sense of something's not quite right, something's not clicking. And that's okay. This is where I love the folks who work on deliberate practice stuff talking about the importance of just, you know, what separates average therapists from the great ones is how much do you listen to your own tape, right? How much, how much time do you really make to to ask yourself some version of the question of what it, what was I trying to do here and then how did it land, which is all about bringing that scientific thinking to the human interaction of, of um, you know, these, these techniques can seem very, I don't know, impersonal and technical that now that's just, but <laughs> of course, techniques are technical, but they are being used to human ends. So as a supervisor, as a supervisee, making time to really answer the question of, did this land in the very um, human way that I intended it to? That's a really important question. I'm glad you brought up the nod to deliberate practice because it was certainly on my mind and my listeners know that I'm a huge feedback informed and deliberate practice nerd. Um, But this idea of what is the goal of therapy and when we're in agreement about that between therapist and client, we're much more likely to achieve that goal, which really, yes, part of therapy is there as a therapist is about ego and wanting to have influence and feeling like we're quote unquote good at our jobs. (laughs) And so it's not just about the ability of like, yes, we want our clients to have a reduction in their anxiety or an improvement in their relational skills or whatever it is, but also how do we evaluate our own effectiveness? And that part of it, part of that as a supervisor is making sure that the tools or language that a clinician has to evaluate, evaluate their own effectiveness actually makes sense. Yes. A hundred percent. And that actually reminds me, Beth, something you said a couple minutes ago about uh, with family systems, for example, <laughs> where where one of the issues may be you could be very clear on everyone's goals. It's just that everyone's goals are different from, <laughs> from the from the other. It reminds me, I had a great supervisor, uh, the psychologist Liz Sullivan, and she had a very, very transparent way of talking with people with personality pathology. Uh, she would say that their ground rules, you know, the, very early session one or two, she would say, I promise to always take you seriously. I promise to always be honest with you. And I promise to always work in your best interests, even when you and I don't agree on what those best interests are. So number three needs the most unpacking in a way, because part of what she was saying implicitly with that is that I will be transparent with you about those times when you think this is in your best interest and I don't agree. And I do think there are times where we, for one reason or another, usually well-intentioned, don't do that. And that's a recipe for you could use the fanciest, shiniest technique in your toolbox. There is no technical intervention that will surmount disagreement on goals between therapy therapist and client. That's the bedrock of working alliance, which we know undercuts all of all of the EBPs. So um, yeah, I think that's part of this work as well is, is there are times where goal disagreement does happen and sometimes for very good reasons. And I think it's important. I don't want to say it's especially important to be talking transparently about that because I really think therapy goals are important to be talking about 
all the time, <laughs> but but especially especially in times where there's this uh, disagreement, and that comes back to the power too. I don't I don't think any of us in mental health get into the field because we want to have these you know paternalistic goals for people that we work towards on their behalf without their knowledge. No, exactly. no one goes, <laughs> none of us are here for that. So let's make extra sure that we don't slip into that by by an accidental lack of transparency. Yeah, it's, it's a really heady and complicated concept. And um, I'm thinking about, let's say, working with a adolescent client that is smoke marijuana. And for the parent, it may be, well, this person needs to stop smoking. But then for the clinician, we may see that very differently where it's like, well, this marijuana is a coping skill that they're using in order to manage XYZ big feeling, whatever it is, or this thing that happened. Um, and that the child may also see that differently. But then I think that is another point of discomfort for clinicians whether they're in supervision or not, is how do we navigate it when there is this disagreement? Um, and then, and in as much, then that same light uh, landing on the supervisorial relationship where how does a supervisor step in and address when there's this disagreement? Um, so this as above, as below phenomenon occurring that we're creating the room for disagreement between supervisor and supervisee, just as we would want the supervisee to create room for disagreement between client and therapist. It is so complicated. It's very <laughs> so, complicated. So, so supervisors <laughs> listening, if you're struggling with this, and, and I think the, the thing that you want to do, one of the things I lean on actually is really co-creation. And let's bring that idea not only in therapy, but also in supervision. So the other day I was talking in a supervisory session and the person I was supervising said, oh, look at this parallel process that I, I'm replicating from this work with this very, very challenging family system, actually. And I had totally not picked up on the parallel process yet. However, wh what I will say is I'm glad that I have created the environment with them where they felt comfortable naming it and talking about it. And so I think there, yeah, I think there's an element where we need to give tremendous grace to others and also ourselves about there is time, th there are times for all of us, many times, maybe most of the time, where these principles are sort of swirling around. And so then all the more reason to do what we can to create these spaces where we talk about not not only what does this what does this client need i think i'd never thought about it this way but i think the related supervision question is what do you need to support the client with what they need um that that that's a nice way to kind of frame what what happens in supervision and can and can make room for some of those uh tougher questions like um you know, sometimes the ways I think supervisors can su support supervisees is by acknowledging if you're working with someone who's got a history with multiple significant interpersonal traumas, the work will be slow. And so maybe one of the things that the supervisee needs in supervision is a lot of support from the supervisor of, yes, this work is going to be slow. And even in the context of the slow going work, here's how we're going to track progress together. And here's what I can do to support you as you support this person in reducing their own avoidance and making room for that traumatic material to, to sit differently for them. It's a, as you said, it's a complicated undertaking to touch the client indirectly, if you will. 
Um, and then to to have that awareness as a supervisor, and then that opens up its own conversation of how do we not replicate our own stuff in that power dynamic? <laughs> like it just it's again, it just keeps kind of growing infinitely in the awareness of of power and um, and the importance of principle. You talk about how really this principle oriented work is trans theoretical. Can you explain that and how you conceptualize that as a seasoned supervisor? where it's like, regardless of the evidence-based practice du jour, staying focused on this guidepost. Yeah, I'm going to tell you about one of my most favorite studies because it's a little, had some unusual findings. So I ended up with a co-author coming across this paper for something we were writing. So Goldfried Rao and Kasten Gui in 1998, they examined significant sessions of master therapists. So that, that it's not just the therapist saying, oh, I'm a master, but but self or, or going through this identification process of, okay, who is, who is really skilled at their craft? And they found therapists who were either master therapists in cognitive behavioral approaches or in psychodynamic or interpersonal approaches, those two different camps. And with their therapy cases, they had the master therapists identify, can you pick out the sessions that have felt uh, particularly impactful in your overall arc of work with this client? And so here's the really interesting thing. They coded those sessions for what techniques were people using? Were they using CV techniques or PI techniques? And what they found, I love this, is at the sessions that were the most significant for the therapists, that is when their techniques were the most integrative to the point where master CBT looks a ton like master psychodynamic interpersonal approaches uh, when it's being done with really high fidelity from master therapists. I think that's the kind of thing that people, we, we do know this on some level, <laughs> but I, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, maybe like tribalism around acknowledging that. And another example that I would say is the way I think about any trauma-focused work, and that could be, so the one I do the most is cognitive processing therapy, but prolonged exposure or EMDR, any evidence-based trauma-focused treatment that we have, I think helps people sit with their traumatic history differently. And we actually know from the dismantling studies that the techniques don't particularly matter. So CPT has a great example. They've, they've done that dismantling work. And it turns out, unless someone really feels compelled to write the account of the traumatic event, writing the account doesn't make a difference in treatment outcomes. It's, it's not the writing task. Same thing with EMDR. It's, it's not the eye movements, which is why you can swap them out for tapping or other things. So and that's a really good example of the underlying principle, right? So so if you believe that the heart and soul of PTSD is avoidance, which I do, then the answer to the question becomes, how can we help this person approach th the thing and make self-compassionate room for what they have been avoiding? So obviously the answer of how to do that is incredibly complicated, but I, but I don't think it's a technical one, right? I think that's a, what techniques work best for that person, but it's really this principle, right? Of, of they have something that due to the horror of the events, they have been attempting to hold at bay because that's the only way they know to move through their lives. And eventually for most people, what I've found, and I think other folks who see a lot of trauma have found that that becomes unsustainable, no matter how many two by fours you've nailed over the, you know, the little closet in the attic, <laughs> the, the monster is hanging on the door. And, and so then the question becomes, what, what's another way to help you live, live with this monster? 
the humblest answer to that is maybe therapy is not the way. (laughs) Uh, I think if you do this work long enough, an experience I've certainly had with folks is having a session where I feel like I very transparently laid out, for example, you know, if you wanted to do trauma-focused work, this is what this would entail of you. And there are times where people say, I don't, I don't want to do that. I've also had times where months and months later, people come back and say, okay, I'm ready to do this now, or here's what I did instead. And I don't ever want to be the kind of expert who thinks that therapy is the only way to get there. I, I saw this great New Yorker cartoon one time. It said something like, there, there's, a, there's a mountaineer kind of sitting offside the trail while all these other people are climbing up the mountain. Um, and it says something like, the, the only wrong way to climb the mountain is to yell at other people that they're doing it the wrong way. <laughs> So I I believe that in life and also in therapy. If other people are doing good work, then I think the trans-theoretical answer there is, okay, what what are the techniques? It is helpful to know what are the techniques that they are doing. And then the other question is, what what techniques are they using that relate to what principles I already believe in and enact in different ways? Part of when I'm dealing with a, when I'm working with a trainee who has more experience, my challenge for them is often thinking about how would you describe your approach to therapy without using any jargon? (laughs) Uh, What I'll say to folks if I'm feeling kind of strict about it is honestly, you could have the most beautiful theoretical orientation in the world. And if you can't explain that to another therapist from a different orientation in a way that makes sense to them, I don't know if that's useful. And if you can't explain it even to another therapist, how on earth is it going to make sense to a patient? So I think that's some of our work is getting really concrete with what do I think that I'm doing? Um, and how do I how do I convey that to the person that I'm working with in a way that that they that they're willing to get on board and do that work with me? In the example you gave about a really um, expert therapist, a master therapist, using a psychodynamic or CBT, you said that their most effective sessions are really integrative. Can you give an example of what that really means in practice? And how would anybody observing that session know, okay, basically, that was integrated CBT right there. That's what that was. Versus <laughs> versus the fumbling through CBT or any other intervention for that matter, which we've all been there. You know, as you said, like, we all have um, things to grow on. We all start as new baby therapists, as I call it. And so whether that's something we still do in our career or something that happened however many years ago, it's just part of life is that we don't have all the answers. We're going to fumble sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's a great question. So I haven't looked at that particular me- measure, but I, I think I can pull up some things that are um going to be relevant. So a good example of a really common technique on the on the cognitive behavioral side when people measure technically what's happening in therapy is when the therapist helps the patient identify links between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, right? Just the, the classic old triangle. An item that comes from uh, ways that people categorize psychodynamic interpersonal interventions would be things like uh, the therapist talks with uh, the client about patterns from uh, development occurring over time, right? Um, The thing that I love there that does not match sort of how people's thoughts about Freud have filtered out into pop culture is we're not talking about your childhood for the sake of talking about your childhood, right? We're we're talking about your childhood for the very specific principle-based reasons of how does your early social learning history affect the present moment stuff going on. So what'll happen with an integrative therapist, and, and I think for anyone who, I'm a big fan of being in therapy as well, I know I've experienced this myself, 
Uh, so when someone's really integrating that, then then it's going something like, um, okay, so let's talk about this situation where so-and-so said something, you, you mentioned you felt this in response, and here's how it impacted your behavior. What does that remind you of, right? And, and the client goes back to, oh, let's revisit those conversations we had about my father or, or whatever caregiver. So it's bringing both of those things to bear in this integrative way that I would say is not only integrative from the theoretical perspective of, yes, that's combining a cognitive behavioral as well as a psychodynamic approach. It's also integrative in the context of the person's life, right? Where, where we're, um, uh, Lorna Benjamin, another thing she would always say to, to patients, which I really love, is I want to see the world the way you do. And assuming there's an internal logic to that, right? Of, of, of if I can understand what you've experienced well enough, then your reaction in this situation on some level is going to make perfect sense. Maybe it's not a reaction that you want to keep having. <laughs> uh, and given the context of your life to date, of course, that's how you're responding. So uh, th that's one example of when these things really do meld trans-theoretically. It's an interesting order then to get away from the fumbling and just this really organic conversation. I, and I think that therein lies the issue with imposter syndrome, where it's like, well, that person over there in that other office, they can do this in a smoother way than I can. And it's sitting with, well, sometimes, yes, we're going to be disjointed, and sometimes it's not going to land well. And that also, to me, circles back to feedback-informed treatment, um, where, you know, if, if, if you as a therapist reach for the whiteboard and say, okay, we're going to list pros and cons of doing X, Y, behavior. Um, and then the client kind of winces and shifts uncomfortably. <laughs> like, how are we responding to that? Whereas like, in theory, that's a great intervention, but maybe not for that client in that context in that moment. Um, and to listen to that, to be open to that awareness of like, or, or not, I'm noticing that your body language just changed. Can you tell me what's going on? Yes. That reminded me best. So something that, so something that comes up, I think all the time with trainees uh, is, is when they're in the very early on stage. So, so the other thing that I would say about this conversation is just know based on who you supervise that, that trainees at different stages really do have different developed needs and all the growth, ed growth edges, right? So if I'm working with a someone who's on the last year of their PhD psychology internship, yeah, I am comfortable talking with them about their um-hums and, <laughs> and what would happen if you used less of them and, and reinforced in another way. Um, one thing that beginning trainees often worry about uh, is, is I have found people really do have this fear that clients are going to get up and storm out of the room. <laughs> and so part of how I talk about that with people is I have had people get up and storm out of the therapy room on me, thankfully not very often. And so one of the things to remember as a supervisor is, is first First of all, one of the ha part of the ways that I normalize that is I have never had that happen as a surprise to me. So if so, if you if I had a tape of all these sessions, right? That if you if you pause the tape two minutes before the person got up and stormed out, I would not tell you I thought that session was going well, <laughs> which which trainees don't know. So that's part of it. As, as I normalize, uh, that's not outside of the realm of possibility. And my strong suspicion is you're not going to be surprised if that happens. But then what that opens up is this great conversation, like you mentioned, with the wincing of how do we tell how our interventions are landing? 
which includes stuff, right? If you if you raise an idea and you see the person wince, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong intervention, but it's certainly a piece of data that you're getting from the patient that, A, I would say, I would encourage people to explore more, right? What happened to you as I just introduced this idea? What are you noticing in your body? Uh, and and the, other, the other thing I think this gets back to with this transparency and power we're talking about, a lot of times when I have seen interventions fail, it's because the trainee, especially when they're learning, and this this could even be people who are seasoned therapists learning a new technique. Oftentimes, we have explained the technique much less well than we think we have. So, so that's always a great question to ask the supervisee. And sometimes that means you realize as a supervisor, you need to back the card up and say, okay, okay, it's actually my responsibility. If, if I've got a trainee who doesn't feel like they can explain this technique, well, that's actually my responsibility <laughs> to, to get them in a place where, where they can do that. And, and then we can also talk about, okay, are there any things about this client in particular where, you know, even in the explanation, you're getting this sense that things are going off track. Uh, so it's, I think we, sometimes we forget that informed consent is an ongoing process. So if, you know, if you think, and again, drawing from my own experience as someone being in therapy, um, at the beginning of therapy, I, I think all we're really consenting to is to begin therapy. <laughs> And, and unless you're in a situation where you work in a specialty clinic, you, you know, and someone knows they're coming to you for exposure response prevention for OCD or something, even then, right, we still repeat informed consent. And, and in cases where we have a much more generalist practice, I think the reality of therapy is there's, there's need for ongoing informed consent as the treatment goals are developed, as new life circumstances come up, and, and really being transparent with people about, okay, so, so let's, let's revisit again this question of what is the work we're doing together? How do you feel about that work and having those conversations? For you as a supervisor, how do you identify and conceptualize when a technique may have been inadvertently disconnected from its underlying original principle? So when there is that disconnect, like how do you see that moment as a supervisor? And then what do you do with that moment where it's like, Yeah, and I would say this goes back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier about kind of the two directions of abusing power. Uh, So for me, one of the big clues can just be that the technique, that the, the trainee doubled down on the technique. Uh, so, so again, I think this comes up all the time in Socratic dialogue or, or some forms of CBT. And this is where it gets a bad rap, actually, is I would say the person is then no longer doing CBT. They're, they're doing, I don't know, like therapy blended with interrogation or something. <laughs> um, but so, so sometimes you can even tell just from length, like, it, like if a discussion about a particular topic in a session went on for a long time, that's, that's one clue. And the other kind of opposite direction clue would be if the trainee switched techniques abruptly. One of the things I will say about that, and this is where I love what the people with deliberate practice are doing, but I also just think whether or not you do deliberate practice or feedback-informed care, um, these are things that are hard to catch through conversation <laughs> about cases. So so one of the things that I would say that I've experienced time and time again is I am much more useful to my supervisees when I am listening to tape. Because a lot of times what's happening is when people do double down or switch away from a technique, they're making the one of those fast system one judgments of something feels wrong here. 
and they may not even have good insight into the moment that they've done it. So, so oftentimes what I'll find is that supervisees do have a good sense of that session didn't go very well. Especially when they're learning, though, that's like, you know, with people getting up and leaving the room, the, the moment where things really derailed is often earlier and more subtle than they thought it was. And, and that's where I think some of this stuff, you just, there's no way to catch it other than tape. So that's a good thing to think about with in, in, if you're a supervisor is if you're not listening to tape, why not? What are the barriers? And, and what is that costing you and your ability to help your supervisee learn? I think that's a really important point. And there's also the fact that we're always then invariably seeing the session through the supervisee's eyes, through their interpretation, and also for through their ability to have had a different realization about that session in between now and when it happens. So when they're sitting with you in the room, have they had time to talk to other people, reflected on it? And so then basically how... how um, how much do our brains start impacting the facts of a situation, facts being always relative, but is it actually an accurate representation of what even occurred in the room because we're so distracted by ourselves in the room <laughs> that we're not good historians, just in general, human beings are not good historians and that that phenomenon is going to play out in supervision just as much. Yeah, and I think another clue while we're talking about it is also the counter-transferential stuff. So that's a good example of how I personally am an integrative person. One of the things I think is really critical as a supervisor is to make room for your trainees' reactions to their patients. Sometimes it is about a client who is just a hard person to sit with. But a lot of times, to loop back to an earlier point in our conversation, uh, you were talking about just getting our ego wrapped up in our own sense of self-efficacy, right, um, is a lot of times I think people experience that. So it, it comes up differently depending on the the therapist's personality. It can look a little bit like the, I don't want to work harder than them. It can also um, come up in terms of, I don't think I can help them. Or, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways that dislike for the client can show up in the room. And I do think one really good hypothesis for that is always is, okay, does, does this trainee feel like they have the skills to help the person with what they need defined narrowly, but also broadly? What does this person need overall? Um, and, and, and am I making room for that in the supervisory conversation? You're simultaneously holding space for so many different parallel processes. <laughs> yes, which is the joy, the joy of supervision. Yes, the, I think the I love joy it. and the complexity and challenge of supervision because it's just, there's so many, your eye is on the prize, but there are also like 12 different prizes simultaneously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, and I think modeling what that transparency looks like in the supervisory process is really important. So something, there there are times when we're in my own self-reflective practice. Uh, I, I do wonder, like, are there times where I'm too transparent? Is that a thing I even believe in? Uh, and I say that because there's been times where a supervisee and I have been talking about something tough and, and I will say some version of, have you tried just saying? And the person gives me this look like, oh my gosh, you would just like say that? Like I'm allowed to say that? <laughs> which which on my own end, self-reflectively, I'm always like, am, am I allowed to say that? And But it's usually around this stuff that's really, really transparent about the process. And I think there is, I, I say this including myself in it, I think there's a way that we don't introduce these concepts of transparency about 
what we're offering to people early enough in people's graduate training. And we, expertise is important. And part of expertise is also owning really clearly what we can't do. And to some degree, I, I think that's always going to happen, right? How do you help people develop confidence in their growing expertise while also <laughs> helping keep them aware of the stuff they don't know? But I, I think there's something about that conversation that we can do differently, where where we're toggling with less ego involvement between those two states of professional being. Absolutely. And that it can get muddied when we confuse like expert or expert status with specific expertise or that so much of this, you know, you know, this would be a separate conversation, but that what it would take to be a master therapist would be the integration of these concepts. And that's what you're trying to nurture in, in a supervisee is practicing these things, accepting that they're going to have areas that need work. And that's exactly why they're there. That this is that if we're looking at um, a golf lesson someone's not there for us to keep saying you're swinging exactly right. It's for the trainer to say, actually, you do this thing when you hit this point that you lose your balance a little bit. What happens when you try it this way? And that our eyes as a supervisor have to be on that same prize where it's like our our supervisees knows it, need to know that that's what they're there for. Just like their therapy clients need to know what they're there for. Exactly. That reminded me of, I'm going to forget the author's names, but there's this amazing article that I have almost all my supervisees read. The title is, Love Yourself as a Person, Doubt Yourself as a Therapist. And the really interesting finding is if you can tease those things apart, so personal self-doubt is all the imposter syndrome stuff. (laughs) You know, who am I to be doing this work? I'm no good, blah, blah, blah. And the professional self-doubt is, I, I would say it has an element of wise mind in it, right? Where you can look at a session that didn't go well. <laughs> and ask and ask yourself without a ton of heat, why didn't it go well? Right? What what techniques was I using? Right? What principles was I trying to hit? And so I try to make really clear to supervisees the the professional self doubt is what I'm going to try to foster with you. And this also helps us identify part of what this has helped me do when people really do have a lot of personal self doubt is then you can distinguish them. Right? Um, so part of our jobs as supervisors is if there's so much personal self doubt that is actually coming up and impeding their ability to do the work, that is something for therapy in addition to supervisors supervision. And that distinction helps people see, no, 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 no. We, we do want to ask all the questions about um, what didn't go well in this session. The other thing that we never talk about enough, I'm certainly including my, that this on myself, um, that I talk about with both clients and, and supervisees is when it does go well, why? <laughs> right? Like when that technique landed, how did you know, right? What, what, what told you um, in, in your interaction with your client that this was effective for them? And also making time both in therapy and supervision to talk about the successes. Um, I, I think that's something that, that the, yeah, we, we good, uh, focus on techniques includes both knowing when we're not using them well and also being very, very specific um, with when, it, when is a time when the principle land, when the technique landed directly on the principle that you were trying to activate. Noticing on all the levels. Um. Dr. Macaronis, you and I could keep going on this and just keep riffing. (laughs) Um, This has been a really interesting hour. Thank you for spending this time with us in this conversation about principle-based supervision and principle-based therapy. For our listeners who want to learn more about you and about your work, what is the best way to do that? 
You know, I keep a pretty low profile on social media. I am on LinkedIn though, and I also have a small little baby consulting practice. Uh, so people can reach me at julia at praxispsychotherapy.com. I love having these conversations though. So I'm always happy to hear from folks who are equally as nerdy as I am. <laughs> Thank you so much. And for listeners who want to um, build out some of the concepts you're talking about, what resources or books you mentioned an article, where do you recommend folks go to really start thinking more deeply about these concepts and how to um, build out our role as supervisors and our awareness of these things? That's such a good question. So one of the things that I came across a couple years ago and really wish I had had in graduate school, if you if you are someone who uses CBT techniques and theory at least some of the time, is Hazen Hoffman had a great 2018 book called Process-Based CBT, which really goes at, they use the word process the way I use principle. So basically goes through what, what are you attempting to activate for folks and how does that look? I actually think that Hayes has an even newer book that's, that's it might just be called Process-Based Therapy. So expanding on that concept. Um, I think there's a couple other, one recent example of a, of a manual that I thought did a beautiful job with the principles is I've been doing CPT for a long time, but um, just looked at the 2016 manual of cognitive processing therapy for PTSD. The example that stands out to me is they describe Socratic dialogue so beautifully from the principle, not technical standpoint of what are we trying to activate. Uh, I think some of the other stuff that I always come back to is, again, I think a lot, I'm not a deliberate practice person, but I love those ideas in terms of, okay, how do I, how do I measure my own efficacy? Um, so those are some of the places I would start, but I also, I think we can add links in the show notes of some other articles, um, like the one I mentioned on master therapists, the listeners will have access to. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Julia. This has really been a wonderful time to spend with you. I appreciate you taking your time out and doing this with us. It has been totally my pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.